This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The FBI had closed in on Jack Barsky. They had watched him for years, tracking his moves and keeping an eye on any suspicious activities. Though he was now living what seemed to be a normal life of an American in the quiet of rural Pennsylvania, the FBI was still not sure if he was an active agent or not. Through a bit of luck, the FBI would land a new home base to surveil Jack that could change everything about the investigation. They became Jack's next-door neighbors. The houses were not real close in that neighborhood. Jack and Penny were not close to the neighbors that originally were in there, the husband and wife. We never saw them interact with them. So we thought it, it could work. And for a while, it was a male and female agent that were in there. But mostly, it was just one male agent who was in there. And he wasn't in there all the time. He would come and go at different times. It was someone from our office. The agent who bought the house was from the New York division. Though he was lead on the case, Joe Riley would roll up his sleeves and get his hands dirty too by rooting through Jack's garbage. Oh, that was more than occasionally. That uh, was what is known in the Bureau as a trash cover. Every week he put his trash out and for the better part of a couple of years, I was going through his trash. After a while that I wouldn't pick it up most of the time, the surveillance team would pick it up after the first few months. I was picking it up at first, but then we had this regular routine where the surveillance unit would pick it up and they would drop it right outside my garage at my house. They knew where I lived. So when they were going off their shift, they would bring it and drop it at my house and then I would go through it. And during the winter, it was not a problem, but during the summer, it was, it was not good. Despite the progress they had made, Riley pushed hard to get an even deeper look into life at the Barsky's home. Retired FBI agent Pete O'Donnell explains. Back then you couldn't, you had had super locked affidavits saying this is a spy, this is a Russian trained guy and we need to, you know, wire his house to get more information so we can assess him to see if he's running other people in this country and uh, eventually uh, prepare for an interview, which is, uh, you know, the make or break you know, uh, case at that point. Yeah, you're looking for vulnerabilities. You know, if you can get a, a wire, if you can get his phone tapped or his house bugged, then you, you know, you're getting personality assessments. Joe Riley wanted to bug Jack's house, but the approval process was not an easy one. I wanted to, and so did my headquarters, wanted to put uh, microphones in the house almost right away. Uh, after a few months of the investigation. We put together an, an affidavit, submitted it to our headquarters, and it had to be approved by the legal section of the FBI, who then took it to the Department of Justice, and their lawyers had to review it, approve of it, and then it would go to the FISA court for authorization to put the mics in the house. We got on to him, and we've then we verified it. Barsky was the Barsky. We believe uh, Matrokin was saying, you know, we believe this is the guy. 
then uh, you develop, a, you know, the Pfizer warrant. Uh, back then, it was uh, <laughs> the Pfizer warrant was extremely difficult to get. That interview is, uh, you know, crucial, and you better have done mountains of time of research so you can flip them if you can. The FBI had monitored Jack for nearly five years and still had not moved in for an arrest. Though there were no red flags, they knew he could still be on the move at a moment's notice. Jack's case was the number one espionage case within the FBI, and they needed to take the utmost care, especially knowing they wanted to flip him. We would want his cooperation. We thought we had, you know, a legitimate illegal here uh, who might be running. Even if he wasn't running people, he might have just had information for the last year or two. Uh, we were looking for some good leads. And they, these guys are like finding unicorns or something. They're very difficult to find. They're so well-trained, so isolated. It became a real problem, astoundingly to me at the time. I mean, we demonstrated in the affidavit that Jack was an illegal alien operating on behalf of a foreign intelligence service using a false identity. He was trained in Moscow. We had all this information from Matrokin, as well as our own information that we developed here about his phony background and so forth. But the lawyers at the Department of Justice refused to grant our authorization because we could not demonstrate that he was actively spying now. We couldn't show them evidence that he was actually operational. Well, we got caught in a catch-22 because, you know, we tried to tell them. I went down to Washington, D.C. and had a conference with them with the SAC of the office in Philadelphia. SAC means special agent in charge. He went down with me and we had a conference and explained to them that if our surveillance units followed him to an operational meeting, that he would discover that surveillance, that he was trained to do that. If he discovered the surveillance, he was gone, and we'd lose the case. We'd lose him, and we didn't want to do that. So we couldn't provide evidence that he was actually spying, because if we did, we would lose him, if such evidence existed. So we got caught that if we tried to provide that evidence, we wouldn't need the, the microphones because he'd be gone. So we tried to explain, you know, we had all this other evidence and certainly the Constitution. We, you know, we want everyone's right to privacy protected, but this is a, a foreign intelligence agent operating secretly in this country. Certainly he doesn't deserve the protections of the Constitution that you and I deserve to be protected with. And... <laughs> It was finally the director of the FBI interceded and raised hell with them over it, who was Louis Free at the time. But anyway, they finally did approve of it. Uh, it was like a year and a half of wrangling with them. And the FISA court approved it immediately. So we then, on a weekend when they were away, we, uh, our technical team entered the house placed microphones in the kitchen and the family room. And then we, we set up the tapes in the office in Allentown so that we were listening to the conversations. The whole marriage started on the wrong foot. Think about it. We were companions and lovers, but I married her because I, uh, I felt sorry for her. 
And then she got pregnant, and you know, and on and on. So we 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 skidded into a marriage that should not have been. So I was still sort of trying. I really wanted to make this work. And one day I decided to to deploy uh, what I now call the nuclear option to make clear to her that I was really, really, really on her side and not an enemy to be fought. So I don't know the exact words that I used, but I said, hey, listen, I got to tell you something. This is, maybe that proves to you that, uh, that, that I am not your enemy. I used to be a Russian spy. When the Russians wanted me back home, I decided to quit and stay with you and Chelsea. As she thought this through, Penelope got even more upset because now she was smart enough to figure out that if I'm not legal, then she's not legal. So she was now concerned, and, and there was reason to be concerned, uh, that if I'm ever caught, she'll get kicked out of the country and the kids wind up uh, wardens of the state. And that actually made things worse. I guess it was three or four weeks. It wasn't very long that Jack had a conversation with Penelope in the kitchen that revealed everything. Penelope was upset with him because, to be frank, she thought she was marrying an American citizen. She was here illegally. And in marrying an American citizen, she becomes automatically a U.S. citizen. And it turns out this one in a hundred million shot, she marries a guy who isn't going to get her U.S. citizenship. He's a foreign intelligence agent here illegally. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Alden Ehrenreich. This is The Agent. I was on a one-way street. I needed to go to the United States. She could not be allowed to interfere with that. There was no turning back. It was clear that I was going to become Henry Van Randall. Soviet troops were all over the place in Afghanistan today. Neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. They were afraid that Ronald Reagan might want to accelerate the end of the world. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I created for myself an artificial dual personality. I had two of them. The spy job got in, in the way of my real job. I knew that the FBI would never find me. I had a dream one night. I think I need to look for him again. I need to find him. Chapter 10, No Way Out. Jack had spilled the beans to his wife, telling her everything about his life as an agent for the KGB. And the FBI was listening in on the whole thing. It came out in detail in this argument. And he was trying to explain to her, you know, the, the dilemma that he had, that uh, he was in this country and uh, he was stuck now. He wanted to stay with her and with the kids. But if he revealed his identity, he'd be arrested. And, you know, he was in a quandary. He didn't know what to do. And she was upset and he was, he was upset and they were arguing back and forth. But it revealed everything, that he was no longer operational. That was important. He was afraid that they might uh, come after him one day because he had been threatened at the uh, elevated platform in, uh, in, New in New York City. 
He was waiting for a train and he was confronted by someone from the KGB, an agent, who basically threatened him. Subsequently, then he moved. He, he fled from where he was and had moved a couple of times, I think. So he was, he was trying to explain all this to her. Even more concerning for Penelope was the fact that she had been living in the country as an illegal from the beginning. Now that she discovered she was married to an illegal, what would happen to her and to the children? The marriage had already been on shaky ground and was now made even worse by Jack's admission. Unbeknownst to Jack, the FBI now had him on tape, confirming what Matrokin had written in his notes years earlier. So when this conversation came up, I immediately relayed it to my headquarters with a request to finally arrest him. I was elated. Uh, I wasn't shocked because I expected it. From all the work that we had done, I expected to hear that he was no longer operational. It was no shock to hear that he had been a KGB agent. We, we knew this. So uh, I was just glad that it came out clearly on this tape and that my headquarters would hear it, that he was no longer operational and there was no point in continuing this investigation that we should go and arrest him. Like any other day, Jack drove to and from the Prudential offices, located 50 miles east from his house. On his way home, right after passing through a toll bridge over the Delaware River, Jack was pulled over by the police. I worked in uh, Livingston, New Jersey in those days, and I would the commute by car was about an hour, Route 80. Friday evening was pretty clogged because there was a lot of people going uh, away from New York into the Pocono Mountains and so forth. So I'm driving home pretty much annoyed with, uh, you know, what happened at work. I, I was always annoyed with what happened at work, you know. The boss is stupid. <laughs> uh, the, my, my colleagues didn't get it. Uh, you know, we're spending too much money on, 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 on useless things. Anyway, so I'm driving home, you know, shaking off what happened during the week and uh, just, you know, looking forward to spending a weekend with the kids. I'm driving west and as traffic eases because, you know, all the New Jersey commuters disappeared from the highway and we speed up and then I have to cross the Delaware River. That was a bridge with the toll after you cross the bridge. So I, I drive up and put my coins in, and just as I'm trying to drive off, there's the uh, state trooper in uniform in front of my car and says, hello. And so I wind down, and I had a manual control for the windows. And I crank down the window, and it says, yes, sir. It says something like, uh, traffic, traffic check, routine traffic check. And then he said, would you please step out of the car? And I still didn't put two and two together. And as I'm standing there waiting for this fellow to talk to me, and I sort of sense or maybe even see out of the right side of my eye somebody coming from behind. And as the man comes closer, looking at him, he looks at me and he flashes a badge. I didn't even look at it. I knew that was trouble. He didn't even have to open his mouth. And then he said, FBI, we would like to talk with you. Myself and Dave Rowe was the other agent. And uh, when the officer pulled him over, we walked over right behind him and asked Jack to get out of the car and told him who we were. And I could tell by the expression on his face that he knew it was all over. Actually, he was, 
He was a little more calm than I thought he would be. He was more or less resigned to it. It was like he expected it would happen one day, and now it has happened. And we told him he was coming with us. I was completely unprepared. For many years, forgot that I even used to be an agent. I didn't think about it anymore. I was so in a different world that I, I never thought the other world would catch up with me. How would they? I was safe. I had lived for nine years under the documentation that made me Jack Barsky. There was never any problem. There was never any sign that somebody who actually was investigating me. And it went like, bam, right? At that moment, it was like a big dam broke and my past, my wicked past, came rushing through and hit me hard. I knew instinctively this was big trouble without thinking it through. So the fellow said, uh, we would like for you to step into their car. My car was parked. As I'm getting into the back seat, there's, a, there's another agent sitting there. And I, I saw that he had a gun strapped to his ankle. That was not a good sight for me, but it was clear that things were serious. But here's the, here's the bizarre, somewhat curious moment that indicated that I hadn't lost my mind yet, and my mind hadn't gone blank, or somehow my instincts were still working really well. I asked two questions. The first question was, am I under arrest? And Riley, who was driving, turned around and says, no. That's all he said, no. And the second question was, so what took you so long? He was in the back seat with, with, I think he was with Dave Rowe. When I turned to him and I said, look, this doesn't have to be the worst day of your life. And he immediately sensed then that he had an out, that uh, maybe he could make a deal here. And that's what we wanted. We wanted him to cooperate with us. And in exchange for his cooperation, he could go back to his family and continue to live the life he had been living. Jack sat in the back seat of the vehicle, pondering his fate. The FBI had questions and took him to a nearby motel. It's a motel in the village of Water Gap, which is right next to the Delaware Water Gap. We walk in there. They had rented all the rooms in one of the wings and had a guard at each end. I knew how I need to behave. There was never a doubt uh, that I was going to completely cooperate. And I told him that pretty much as we sat down, I told him right, right off the bat, I said, it is in the best interest of myself and my family that I work with you and be as honest and you know, work with you as best as I can. They led me to the room in the middle of the hallway. And I walk in there, and they had a bunch of props on a bookshelf or something uh, on the wall. It looked like binders that were labeled. And very quickly, as tense as I was, I realized that that stuff was phony, simply because the, the labels on the binders had bits and pieces of information from my beginning years. There was a, the name of a lady in West Berlin who I sent letters in secret writing to. My cover name was there, Dita, and a few others. And I'm thinking to myself, guys, you didn't have to do that. And I, I thought there may have been an intimidation factor, possibly. And so then we sat down, and uh, they started asking me a whole bunch of questions. Then they allowed me to call the wife to tell her that, hey, honey, I'm, I'm coming home, but I'm delayed to uh, work. I'm working late. 
I already had a sense that they would actually let me go back. I didn't say a word, but in my mind, I says, where the heck am I going to run to? The East Germans forgot about me. I didn't know what they knew or what they didn't know. Certainly, the Russians wouldn't want me anymore. And then I had my family here. I was already established here. I had two kids, and I had a house, and I had a career. None of that they really knew for sure, but Riley had a good sense that this is exactly who I was and, and how I would respond. We had to decide, come about 11 o'clock that night, after we'd been talking with him for three hours or more, do we let him go home? I mean, we had done all this, all this work for all this time. We finally captured a Soviet illegal. Now we let him go home. But we, I had reached a point where I thought uh, we could do that. You can imagine how embarrassing that would be for the FBI had he disappeared. Uh, that would have been disaster. But uh, I felt, well, we had a couple things going for us. Number one, we had the house next door. And we had several guys in the house next door with eyes on his house. There was no way he could leave that house in a vehicle or any other way without agents knowing it. And I wanted to convince him of the fact that we would know if he, if he tried to flee. But I didn't tell him anything about the house next door, but I, I told him we would know if he, had, if he tried to flee. And he said, no, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to. He said, I, I'm going to cooperate. And from our conversation with him, just in that three or four hours, I became convinced that he was going to cooperate with us completely. And we were a little apprehensive, all of us, about letting him go home. But we talked about it and decided, because we had the house next door, we had eyes on his house, that we'd be safe. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. That evening, they, uh, they took me back to my car because the car was parked by the bridge. And from there, they, uh, I drove home. Don't talk to your wife. Just keep it secret. I don't recall the arrangements that we made for the next meeting. There was some hope because of what Riley said. This may not be the worst day uh, of your life. But they didn't go any further. They wound up probably knowing more than what I remember now from childhood on, every little piece. And I understand this in hindsight. This is valuable for counterintelligence because I was one of the best trained. I was one of the elite. It is what it is. I'm not bragging. I was one of the elite. They knew it. So they were trying to find out what kind of a person the, the, uh, the Soviets would select. To what extent that's use, useful and valuable, I don't know, but uh, clearly the FBI did. I had this endless loop in my head into what's going to happen, what's going to happen. You know, I was worried about the kids. I was worried about the wife. I wasn't so much worried about me because the possibility of going to jail had always been with me. 
Clearly, I was also worried about me. I'm not saying I wasn't, but, uh, you know, it was p primarily the kids. It was the growing season for sure, and I would be outside uh, mowing the lawn and doing all kinds of work where you, where your mind is not occupied. And that loop kept on going and going. And I can't tell you exactly how long that ha uh, happened, maybe three to four weeks. And uh, the sequence is also not quite clear. I had to take a light, light detector test. And I believe after I passed the test, they told me, we have decided, the American government has decided that you can stay in this country. To you continue doing what you're doing work-wise, and there is a path to citizenship for you down the road. Boom. Eh, I was home free. I was an unusual case. Typically, when, when you deal with defectors, you give them an another ID, you start them fresh. They might wind up in the witness protection program and so forth. Well, in my case, they decided, and I was very grateful for that, they decided not to disrupt the family, not to give me another ID, because that would have meant my career. And it would have cost the American government quite a bit of money, right? Because I couldn't use the past anymore. My second career would have been blocked. Maybe I would have started as a, as a waiter someplace again, started fresh at the bottom. And it would have uh, been damaging to the family. It would have been damaging to myself. And you really don't want one of those defectors, ex-agents, to go bad. Not long after the weekly sessions the FBI held with Jack, Joe Riley and Dave Rowe went to his house and met Penelope to tell her about Jack's interrogation. She was, if memory serves, uh, again, she was not shocked. She was surprised, not surprised that this happened because Jack had told her of his situation. Uh, I explained to, to her the situation, that Jack was going to cooperate with us, he was going to work with us, and that he was going to continue to live the life that he had been living here. She was surprised that we were going to let him continue living his life. But, of course, she didn't understand our motives, you know, in terms of having him work with us. She didn't fully understand that, and we, of course, couldn't tell her a lot of the details about this case, you know, so. The lingering concern Penelope had of being deported and potentially losing her children had hung over her since that day that the couple had argued in the kitchen, all with the FBI listening in. It's something we never thought of or, or considered. Uh, we would have had we reached that point, but we didn't think we were going to have that problem because we thought Jack was going to cooperate, that he was going to go back living his life. So we didn't anticipate that we would have that problem. Had we had it, then we would have had to deal with it somehow. But she would not have been deported uh, right away. She had those two kids. She had been living here. Uh, she would have been able to stay here uh, indefinitely, really. We told him that we were going to continue our debriefing of him over a period of months, and we did. But he had to go back to work. I believe he went back to work that Monday. And then we would set up a debriefing a schedule, some at night, some on weekends. There's the personal side. You know, Jack and I had lunch together many times. We talked about many subjects. I never got the impression that he was deceptive. And when you're involved in law enforcement, whether it's local or federal, you get tuned in over time with your experience. 
to people who are deceptive in their conversations with you. Uh, I mean, not that you're 100% accurate in that regard. In fact, I can remember one time talking with a guy who was basically a uh, sociopath and he was a great liar and he could fool me or, or anyone. But most of the time, you get pretty good at determining who's telling you the truth and who isn't, who's shading the truth one way or another. And I just never got that impression with Jack. The briefings were extensive and crossed over into a mix of key intelligence units in the U.S. government. They wanted to know everything about Jack and his experiences as an agent. There were people from NSA that came to debrief him because of his uh, communication with KGB Central and how he did it and the, the codes that were used and so forth. That was important uh, that NSA knew what was going on there. And the CIA wanted to debrief him. Uh, we went down to Washington a couple times for meetings. So it was a long period. Uh, he took us to a couple of other drop sites, uh, that one in Staten Island where money was left for him. But uh, it appears some kids playing in the woods around there may have discovered it, but we never found the money and, uh, or the drop. Though Jack had shared everything he knew, there was still one person who was unaware of her father's secret life, his daughter, Chelsea. I'm sitting in the living room in the house in Pennsylvania. I'm watching an NBA game, Michael Jordan playing. And she's sitting next to me. Uh, she was probably 11 years old, and she was still sucking her thumb like this. And she's looking at this, and she said, what's that? I said, that's basketball. I want to play that. that. That's very similar to me thinking when I was 18, I want to go play basketball. She was 11, and she never looked back installed a hoop. We started shooting hoops. Then she joined a rec team. The first time she was on the floor in a game, she was running towards their own basket and didn't pay attention. She got hit in the head with a ball. But within two months, she had become the go-to player. She had this one move. She would just dribble down the side, turn around and shoot it. It was my hobby. It was what I did during my spare time. Guys play golf. I did basketball made profiles for, for the kids with pictures and everything down the road when we came to college recruiting. Chelsea had achieved everything in basketball that her father had not been able to when his time was cut short living in Germany. Chelsea had real talent, and scouts were at many of her high school games. I was getting recruited by a lot of schools, a lot of Division One basketball schools. I had a lot of offers. I had My first offer was like my sophomore year in, in high school by a Division Two school. So I decided I was going to wait at, wait it out because if I had a Division Two offer by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was pretty sure I can get to Division One. Chelsea did receive a Division One scholarship from St. Francis, located in western Pennsylvania. And so I'm on the way to St. Francis with my dad in the car and we're just talking and he decides to start telling me the story. It just came out. And he, I think he opened up with like, you're the reason that I'm still here today. And I was like, okay. I didn't know what he was about to tell me. Then he basically stated, you know, I was a KGB spy. Wow, okay, that kind of already explains a lot of things. And then he told me the story not in its entirety, but I mean, because you cannot tell this story in four and a half hours. 
but I just remember sitting there just listening um, and I, I could not get this thought out of my head that, that he's only alive or just only here in my life because, because I existed. I couldn't figure that out. He told me, this is what I did for my career. This is not my real name. My real name is Albert Dietrich, and this is where I'm from, and this is what I did. And so I asked him some questions, and he answered them. But it, again, it was like a summary, a four-hour summary. It wasn't the story in its entirety. He didn't tell me in detail. He just said that he was called to go back. He, it was very brief. My cover was blown, and they called me to go back, but I decided to risk it and stay. That's what he said. He didn't give me details. He basically told me more of the truth about his childhood, so like the truth about his parents, um, instead of the story that he had told me. The languages he can speak and the time he trained in Moscow, all of his travels. Um, so he was telling me about those things. He didn't tell me details about how he met my mom, but I already knew that, and my parents didn't know that I knew. I kind of figured it out. I found letters. I was hunting for stuff, right? My dad told me when I was 12, 13, like, I have something to tell you when you're old enough to understand. And so I, I was digging and I found some things, but I didn't, it didn't tie it back to the spy stuff. So I didn't know. So that makes sense then, because he was like the FBI. They caught up with me when we were living in Pennsylvania, but he still didn't know that the house next door was, was uh, occupied by agents at that time. He had no idea. That came later. My dad had never not been there. I did not receive this story and think that my life was in danger. I didn't think that something would happen to him, that he would go away, because he had already told me the FBI is letting us stay here, is letting me stay here and letting me become a citizen at some point. I didn't think that that was even something I needed to ask. I just assumed that nothing was really going to change. I think I did ask him, you know, is it safe for me to talk about this? And he said, you probably shouldn't. And I, I did anyways. <laughs> I told my friends because I was like, I don't know how to process this. Nobody else I know has a dad that was a spy. I told friends and they were like, yeah, whatever. And Jack also told his daughter why he stayed in America. I think the exact words he said was, I stayed here because of you, baby. He always calls me baby. You were the reason that I stayed. You're the reason that I'm here, the reason I'm alive. And, but he didn't go into the emotional reason behind it. Most of our conversations throughout my childhood up to my early 20s, there was not a lot of emotional stuff coming out of him. It was very matter of fact and a lot of life lessons coming from him, a lot of hard life lessons. The emotional connection, me towards my dad, is the strongest. I think he has a strong emotional connection too, but it, he hides it, and he had to. You cannot show your emotions as a spy. And so now that I hear this story on my way to college, everything makes sense. That explains why he is the way he is. I know he loves me, so I don't need I don't need him to tell me that it's okay, because I know it's okay, because he otherwise wouldn't have been able to tell me. For as long as I can remember, we would never have a conversation where like, he would emotion, get emotional, like teary-eyed or anything. Never. While Chelsea was away at college, 
Jack and Penelope's marriage finally fell apart. I go to college, and then by the time I was a junior, um, my parents were starting to go through the divorce process. My dad moved out of the house, per my advice. And so when he did that, he took my parrot with him. I would go visit him. There's this one night, we're watching basketball in this, this townhouse he was renting. He's facing the TV, watching the game. He's looking dead on at the TV and he goes, did I ever tell you that you, you have a brother? What do you mean? I have Jesse. No, I mean uh, a German brother. Next time on The Agent. This was one of those secrets that eventually wanted out. I had not expected that she would latch on to that. I had given up because I was like, I don't really know if there's going to be a possibility of finding him. I had a dream one night. I think I need to look for him again. I need to find him. The Agent is a production of Imperative Entertainment in association with Windjoy and is created, written, produced, and edited by Jason Hoke. Narration by Alden Ehrenreich. Executive producers are Jason Hoke, Jack Barsky, and Alden Ehrenreich. Sound engineering and additional editing by Shane Freeman. Our original score by Josh Klebe. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to learn more about this story, make sure to read Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Entangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America by Jack Barsky. Have questions? Email us at podcast at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love this show, tell your friends and leave us a positive review. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.